Genesis. Uh, before we get to Genesis 2, then, I want us to just stop then uh, for just a moment and commit this time again to the Lord in prayer. So would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you in these moments as we look to sit under your word and we uh, ask, as we so often do, uh, for your help, uh, that you would intervene on our behalf in these moments, that your truth would reign supreme, that you would guard us from error, uh, and that in spite of uh, my weaknesses as a speaker uh, and our weaknesses and and inability to listen well, Lord, that your spirit would move in spite of that and that your truth would uh, be lifted high and proclaimed and that we would be changed by the power of your word before us and your spirit within us. Lord, be glorified in these moments. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable before you. And it's in your son's holy name that I pray. Amen. We continue our study in the book of Genesis this morning, in Genesis chapter 2, as we will look at verses 4 through 25. So I'd encourage you to turn with me and your copy of God's Word to these verses. A question that has been asked throughout human history um, is the question, why were we created? Or depending on your worldview, maybe a more broad question would be, why do we exist? Um, and it's interesting to look on the internet for a lot of different things, but if you Google search, why were we created, you find some really uh, strange answers to that question. My favorite, and just kind of looking at what people like to say in answering this question, was uh, we were created ultimately to discover why we exist. Uh, that is quite comical and humorous to me. Um, there is uh, people who say this is just all random chance and happenstance, that there is really no purpose. There is no reason why we were created. We're just here. We live. We die. There's no meaning to this. Uh, there are some who would say that we were created simply to be happy and, and, and to find what happiness means to us in this life. Uh, I think, though, as we walk through the passage this morning, that we will find a different answer according to Scripture. And so what I want us to do is I want us to consider what we see here in the text first before we answer this question this morning. Uh, so as we come to the end of our time, we will answer the question, why were we created? But I want us to look to the text first. I want us to begin there in verse 4 as we, can, we continue in the narrative here of creation. So if you'd look there with me and, and follow along with me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In these first few verses here of the story, I believe we see that God created mankind with the capacity to serve him. 
Uh, He put man in the garden to enjoy him and have fellowship with him, but also to serve him there. Uh, It's interesting as we read the first three verses of this part of the story, verses 4, 5, and 6, and how similar they are to the first three verses of chapter 1. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the earth. Here in chapter 5, we see that there was no bush of the field. Uh, There was no small plant of the field. And then we see in verse 6, there's a mist going up from the land. Again, very similar language. Then chapter 1, verse 3, we see that it says there, God said, let there be light, and there was. Here in verse 7, it says, then the Lord God formed man from the dust, and the man became a living creature. Very similar uh, start to these two separate parts of the narrative. In chapter 1, we see the foundation uh, being laid for pre-creation. But here in chapter 2, we see the setting for pre-fall. Before Adam and Eve eat the fruit. This is, this is the setting that the writer gives us here. So notice some things about it that are very interesting. This pre-fall setting. Uh, it talks about that there was no bush of the field. Interestingly, if you look over in chapter 3 verse 18. When God curses Adam and Eve because they eat of the fruit. Post-fall in verse 18 it says. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And so we believe that Adam and Eve are living inside the confines of the garden. After the fall, we see in chapter 3, they will be kicked out. And so this is a, the, this setting of a pre-fall garden. Also, you see there, it says that there was no rain on the land. We, we will see later on when we get to the story of Noah, the first time that it rains. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 12, at this point, there's just a mist that is, is hovering over the land and watering the land. But then we also see it says there, interestingly, at the end of verse 5, there's no man to work the ground. Well, we know, according to the curse in chapter 3, verses 17 and 19, that Adam would then have to work the land. So when he's in the garden, there's no work to be done to to have food. Everything that he needs there is just at an arm's reach. He can just reach out and grab the food. But after the fall, we see that he has to work by the sweat of his brow Uh, to bring about substance for himself and his family. And so in the midst of this pre-fall garden, God is at work. Yahweh is at work. Uh, We noted earlier in chapter 1, in the first three verses of chapter 2, that the word that is used there for God is Elohim, the common name for God. But here the writer shifts to use the proper name for God, the name Yahweh, as he, the emphasis shifts from chapter 1, the sovereign God of the universe, to now we see the personal covenant-keeping God of Yahweh in the garden as he interacts with Adam. What is God doing in the garden? Well, it tells us here that he is in the, in the, uh, the, the process of creating man. He, he is bringing man into being. So chapter 1, he tells us it create, he creates man. But here it gives us some more detail. It says he creates man from the dust. Interestingly, the word for man and ground are two very similar words. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, it says that he created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. 
And lest we think uh, that we are something, the writer here tells us that we are just creatures, living creatures. We are most definitely created in the image of God, and theologians debate over exactly what that means. We can affirm in simplest terms that we are more like God than any other part of creation. Uh, We have minds and wills. We have the ability to create with our hands. We are reflections of God's glory in this life. But again, the writer doesn't want us to think too highly of ourselves because he tells us there at the end of verse 7 that that we are living creatures. This is the same words he used to describe the birds of the air and the, and the beast of the field. He also says there that we are out of the ground, verse 7. He formed the man out of dust from the ground. These words, out of the ground, are also used for the plants in verse 9 and for the animals in verse 19. He says we are just dust. And later, after the fall, in verse 19, chapter 3, it says, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We're, we're, just, we're just dirt. We are just created beings, but notice there, God breathed life into Adam. Apart from God, we were nothing but dust and created beings. And so in the setting of the garden, man, Adam, is placed there. And although he is just a creature and he is just of the dust, he has this unique opportunity to have perfect fellowship with God, and to serve him forever in his presence in the garden. He is placed there for that purpose. And so I want us to pause for a moment and consider a connection then to the garden and the tabernacle. I think this is important. For a Jewish audience that is reading the creation narrative, in particular these verses here, they're going to see a direct correlation between serving in the presence of God and the tabernacle. And so we don't have time to go into all of the details of this, but uh, I want us to consider that in Exodus, God promises to dwell among his people, and he does so through the tabernacle. And so in a sense, the tabernacle is pointing forward to a heavenly temple that is to come, but it's also pointing back to the garden. And so we see some details when the tabernacle is being constructed that present it in the decoration and in its structure as almost a a picture of the garden, that garden paradise, the tabernacle in the wilderness looks a lot like the garden paradise. And so it's teaching the people, it's pointing the people back to a paradise that was lost, but also promising them a paradise that is to come. And, And so In the tabernacle, they're serving the Lord there, and it's a burdensome task that they're doing. But the presence of God is there, and the tabernacle represents this. And so, throughout human history, we have been asking the question, how do we get back to the garden? How do we enter back into this right standing with God to be in his presence? And we see the answer then in this grand narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That at creation, everything was perfect. Man was there. He had perfect fellowship with God, was enjoying God in that fellowship and serving him. And yet later, as we'll see in chapter 3, the fall happens. And and this relationship with God is broken, and we need a redeemer to intervene on our behalf. And so the tabernacle is a a waiting period of pointing to that that one who is to come to bring us back into a, a restored relationship with creator God. 
And so think about the tabernacle service for a moment. There in the, in the middle of the wilderness. Uh, the, the service that happens year in and year out is a burdensome task to the people post-fall. And the tabernacle worship could not satisfy the wrath of God. The blood of animals, bulls, and goats being poured out on this man-made altar could not satisfy the wrath of God. But Christ comes. And in Hebrews chapter 9, Paul tells us that Christ takes his own blood to the very throne room of God. And he makes atonement for sins. There in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so here we see this garden paradise that is broken later in chapter 3, but we're promised that restoration to come through the blood of Christ alone. And so although we have the capacity to serve God, After the fall, we find that all we can serve is self and creature, created things, and that we are in desperate need of an intermediary. That apart from Christ, we can serve nothing but fleshly things. And we're reminded here of a promise that in Christ, we have the opportunity now to joyfully serve our maker again because of the redemption that was purchased at the cross by his blood. And so the application then for us here is to think about how we can serve our creator God in Christ. And one of the primary ways we serve God is by serving his people. And so I simply ask in a very practical way, what are your gifts And how can you use them to serve others and the church? Maybe you're gifted at teaching. You're skilled at working with children. Maybe you build with your hands. Whatever your gifts are, Jesus calls you to exercise those gifts to help his church grow into his likeness as you serve creator God. And this is not your own doing. This is Christ in you. And so something I love about our church is that we have our our teams where you can uh, come alongside using your giftedness to help our ministry teams in different ways. And so I would encourage you, if you have yet to get engaged in one of our teams, whether it's children or safety or missions, whatever it is, properties, that you would think this morning about how you can use your gifts to serve Creator God because of what Christ has done in you. Now, we are not just able to serve God. We see then in the next verses that there is an expectation given to us. Let's pick up the story in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the side and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In these verses that we just read, we see that God created mankind with the responsibility to obey him. Notice here again the description that he gives of the garden. We see that there is this endless provision of food from these beautiful trees. We're introduced to the two trees in particular that will play an important role in the story as we continue through it later and into next week in chapter 3, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then the writer takes a lot of time, four verses, to give detail about rivers. I think that's kind of interesting that there's this one river flowing out of the garden into four and he names them and describes them in detail. Um, these rivers are closely aligned to the promised land. So we think of something happening post-fall where God will bring his people and in that promise of covenant to give them this land. But again, we see here parallels between the garden and the tabernacle that we just spoke of. Uh, There are details here about gold and precious stones that are surrounding the Garden of Eden. And we see these types of details used in describing the new heavens and the new earth. Again, there's this this anticipation that something better is coming, even here pre-fall. A new temple, a new Jerusalem. But in the midst of all of this, as he describes these rivers to us, notice what is happening here in God's interaction with man. It says there in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him In the garden. Now, this word put is one we saw earlier in verse 8. Interestingly, the word used for put in verse 8 is just a common word for put. But here in verse 15, the writer uses a very different word that has two very special meanings reserved for it. So, in other parts of the Old Testament, this word put is used for two different things. One is it's used to speak of the rest and the safety that the people of God will find in the promised land. But it's also used to speak of dedication of something in the presence of God. And so, when he puts man in the garden, the writer is telling us that he puts him in the garden to rest safely in the presence of God in perfect fellowship with him. Something else here that we don't really see in the English version that we would see more in the original text is in the words, work it and keep it. Now, your translation might say uh, that he put him in the Garden of Eden to serve it and keep it. Uh, And there is an idea that we affirm that in the garden there was work to do. That work is a good thing. Now, post-fall, work is burdensome and our lives depend on it. But Adam wasn't just hanging out in a hammock in the garden. He was working. He had things to do there. But when we see the words work it and keep it, there's something else that's happening there in the text that, again, we miss in the English version. We won't go into all of the details here of the semantics, but a potentially better translation there is that they were that Adam was placed in the garden to worship and obey so that it should read the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to worship and obey him this is affirmed then by what happens in verse 16 this idea of obedience because what does it say in verse 16 the Lord God what commanded the man Now, if you've been keeping track as we've walked through Genesis, this is the first command from God here in the entirety of Scripture. And the command is that you you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, there's three things I want us to take from this command really quickly that are important. First, the blessing here in the garden is contingent on Adam keeping God's commandments. If you remember earlier in chapter 1, in the first three verses of of chapter 2, we see the word blessed used three times to talk about the blessing of the beast of the field, the blessing of, of man, and then the blessing of the seventh day. Now as we move forward into the story, we're going to see also cursing that's happening. And this is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament of blessing and cursing. And and it's something that you see so much of. Uh, In fact, as I read through the Old Testament, I'm in the habit of highlighting this uh, in green. Because it happens so often, this idea of blessing and cursing. So I want us to see this just for a moment because it's really important. So turn with me just for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I want us to see the weight of this idea of blessing and cursing. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. That the blessing of God is contingent on Adam keeping God's commandments. In Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 15, it says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today... By loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. And so we see this blessing and cursing. Secondly, though, in the command back in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God alone knows what is good. He knows what is best for us as his people, as his creation. And so to enjoy the good of the garden, if you will, man must trust and obey God. And if he disobeys, he will then determine for himself what is good. Now, the world will say, that sounds great to me, that I get to determine for myself what is good. But we know, according to Scripture, that when we are left to ourselves, we will fail miserably every time. And as we walk through the narrative of Genesis and we look at the descendants of Abraham, we're going to see dysfunction that proves that time and time again. God knows what's best for us. But thirdly, and most importantly here in this command, we see God's first covenant. So we've been talking about the grand narrative of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And inside this story, we see God making covenant with people. And here we see the first covenant in Scripture, the covenant of works. It's a covenant that God makes with Adam. And in this covenant, Adam is bound to obey God perfectly. And he promises Adam with eternal life if he obeys, but he threatens him with death if he disobeys. And so in the context of what we just read here then, when we look back to chapter 1, what do we see? We see a sovereign creator, God. And then we come to chapter 2 and we see the responsibility of created man to obey God perfectly. And immediately in our human minds, we sense that there is tension here. 
How can God be both sovereign and perfect control of every single aspect of creation and yet man is held responsible to obey? Although these two things might be at odds in our human minds, in the economy of God, they are not at odds. Uh, a good illustration to help with this, a simple illustration, is, this is not an illustration I've come up with my, on my own. This is an illustration I've heard uh, Pastor uh, David Platt use on several occasions to settle the tension between uh, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. He talks about a time when he was scheduled to preach at a conference in Indonesia. Uh, and he gets to the airport, and Delta Airlines had canceled his flight, and there was no way he was going to make this conference in Indonesia. And so David Platt jokingly says, you know, God, not jokingly, but in a facetious way, he talks about how God is sovereign over this situation. He wasn't meant to be there to speak at this conference. And he says, and yet, Delta Airlines is responsible. God was sovereign over this situation, but he said, trust me, I'm going to give Delta Airlines a phone call, and they're going to get an earful because they are responsible. Whether this illustration helps or not with the tension that we see here in the text, I hope what we can take away from it is this. One day, each of us will have to give an account for our works, each and every one of us. And as we saw in the penitential Psalms, in Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer for each of us is, is that none of us could stand in the presence of holy God. None of us could stand under the covenant of works. And so the message this morning is rather to look not to Adam, but look to Christ. And his work on your behalf, not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. That Christ died on your behalf at the cross. And if you believe in him and repent of your sins, you can have eternal life. And have that, that restoration from this fallen state that comes later in chapter 3. And, and find that peace and that, and that joy of knowing God again that was, was broken out of, of the garden. And so we see here... a. Uh, in this command of God that he knows what is best for us. And as we come to the final verses then of chapter 2, we see a beautiful picture in what God knows as best and that he created a woman. Look at verse 18 as we, we close out here. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In these closing verses, we see that God provides the means for mankind to serve and obey him. God looks at Adam in the garden and it says here he saw that he was alone and God said it is not good that man should be alone. Now, lest we think that this is a mistake on God's part, 
or that God got to this part of the story and he's like, oh yeah, I knew I forgot something, the whole woman thing. And he, he has a, a, second, uh, a second opportunity here of thinking through of, of this potential mistake he made. That is not what is happening here. What's happening here is the writer is intentionally displaying for us and giving us the details of this account, the God-given value and distinct roles and uniqueness of gender. So earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, we see that male and female are created in the image of God, and that's all that we have here. But because of the details that are given to us here in verses 18 through 25, we see two important things. First, we see the distinct roles that are given by God between a man and a woman. It says there that God said he will make for Adam a helper. Maybe some of your translations there use the word partner. Uh, this is not a demeaning word in any, uh, in any way. In fact, the, use help, the word uh, helper here is used to talk about God in other parts of the Old Testament, that he is our helper. What we see here is Adam, he's charged with the task to name the animals. And when that is finished, he comes to the realization that nothing in creation is there that corresponds with him. He is alone and he needs community, one to help him with what he alone cannot do. And we see the distinctness of the roles between man and woman in the language and the words that the writer uses here. In verse 24, he talks about father and mother, two very distinct roles that we have affirmed throughout society. And it isn't until recent history that we've denied these things. Uh, interestingly, in verse um, 23 and verse 24, the word that he uses there for man is different from the word he's used previously in the passage. The word there for man is interchangeable with the word husband. And so we see there the word wife in verse 24. We can also translate potentially there in verse 24 the word husband. So it could read, therefore a husband shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And so the writer here is most definitely affirming these distinct roles between man and woman. We also see that she is unique. Now, it says that she is of the same substance, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, as Adam worships the Lord for bringing this helpmate to him. We affirm that man and woman are created with the same value in the image of God, but she is distinct and unique. He gives her a different name. She shall be called woman. We also see, though, here that that her uh, anatomy is different. She looks different to him, but, but her anatomy is different. We see this, and when it says here, the two shall become one flesh. This is not only a, a spiritual uh, application to the marriage bed, but it's also one physically. The man and the woman are, are physically different. Again, God knows what is good and best for us in his creation, and he lays out that order here in the garden. And so to undermine the uniqueness and the distinct roles of male and female is ultimately to undermine God's goodness on display at creation. And so we do not elevate the value of women in our day by discrediting their God-given uniqueness and roles, but rather we take away from their value and the beauty of God who crea God created them to be. 
the uniqueness and the beauty of, of the genders is something that we must affirm here according to the text. But notice, finally, how the relationship is to play out in the confines of marriage in verse 24. In the divinely instituted confines of marriage, that which is ordained by God from the garden, one man and one woman. Now, I'm sure in this place you would amen that. You take that message outside the walls of this place and you will be called a bigot in our day. This is the foundation of society and all of its institutions. And the purpose of marriage is not only companionship, but reproduction. The preservation of God's people in the church. But also there is is in marriage a purpose for sexual intimacy and purity. Young people in this place who have yet to be married, do not believe the lie that there is anything intimate and pure about sex outside of marriage. It is a distortion of God's order for you. Dear friend, wait. Wait for marriage, and you will experience an intimacy and a purity that you would not have experienced before. But ultimately and primarily, the marriage picture here is pointing to something better. It is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. Would you turn with me one more time to Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 30. You know what I'm about to read. You're familiar with this, but I want us to see it here. What is happening here in the garden, this, this marriage that is ordained by God. Well, something, something profound is happening here. And, and Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. So Ephesians 5, verse 31, he quotes what we just read in Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become fl- one flesh. And then verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So as we close, the application here for us is threefold as we consider the closing part of the narrative this morning. So threefold application. First, we as the people of God must submit to his ways as that they are ordained from the garden. And so this has implications, as we've just read here, on our marriages. That husbands, as as Paul talks about earlier in verse 25 of chapter 5, that you learn what it means, according to Scripture, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And wives, that you would learn what it means, according to Scripture, to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This has implications on how we view the pastorate in the church. We don't have time to do this, but I would encourage you to go read 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 later and see the implications between the pastorate and the garden. That we affirm that the role of pastor and preacher and elder is to be held by a man because God has ordained that from the beginning. This is important. But also we see here in submitting to God's ways how we value the roles of gender and the uniqueness of gender in the church in our day. Young ladies who are here, do not let the world tell you that your value is in the size of your paycheck or the freedom that you can find in your sexuality. Or becoming whatever your heart desires, as Disney princesses have been telling us for decades. You can do impossible things if you just follow your heart 
That is a lie. Dear sister, your value this morning is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. Your worth and your hope is in Christ. Live for him, not this world. This world has nothing to offer you. Look to Christ. The second point of application here is that we as the church must teach God's way in regards to these things. I must admit that I struggle with finding a balance of of, of politics and being involved in debate and discussion and the tension of understanding that those things are good and right and I want to be engaged in those, but ultimately my debate skills will not change people's standing before God. That First and foremost, we must preach the gospel. Last week I said, where there is ignorance of God, there is rampant lawlessness. And I believe the reason we see such rampant lawlessness in our day is because there's an ignorance of God and the only way people can come to a knowledge of God is through the cross. Preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. But thirdly, in a very practical sense here as we apply this and come to a close, we see here in the Christian life and in life in general that community is essential to our sanctification. God created us to be in fellowship with one another. And you will not grow into Christ-likeness from the deer stand on Sunday morning. As well as you may try. You can read your Bible and pray, but listen, and I don't say this in a way to belittle you, but to encourage you, you need each other In order to look more like Jesus, you need this covenant community. And it's not popular in our day to think about membership or talk about membership, but when we come together as a a covenant body in this place, we're not doing it just because we've joined a club. We are committing together to something far greater than ourselves, that we believe in a risen Savior, and we affirm the same doctrine and the same statement of faith And we want to come together to live for Christ in San Antonio and proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. And so the application here for us is to join a church. And maybe it's not this church, but find a church where the gospel is preached and and the name of Jesus is lifted high and join that church in community with those people. And so as we've walked through the passage then and we come to a close, I go back to the question I presented at the beginning. Why were we created? And so if you've been on the edge of your seat waiting for the answer this whole time, here it is. Get your pens ready. We were created to worship and obey God. And that's it. And it's all to the praise of his glory. The problem for us is that we are broken at the fall. And in our fallen selves, we are no longer able to worship and obey God. We are only capable of worshiping creature and obeying self. But the good news this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul said this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you are in Christ this morning, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Worship and obey your master. Let's pray.